This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property, a bit of general news here and plenty of negative Nellies coming out in the media in the last week talking about the housing market, so we'll have a bit of a look at that. Also some changes for tenancy law to homeowners, shortages in building supplies and how that's affecting things, and uh, also the large amount of KiwiSaver that's going to be spent on property. So it's lovely having your company here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson, and we'll just get straight into it. Uh, This article from Stuff by Miriam Bell. KiwiSaver members' money backing new rental properties. So a KiwiSaver provider and a home building company have joined forces on a new build-to-rent initiative that they hope will end up as the country's second biggest landlord. NZ Living announced on Thursday it would start building significant numbers of high-quality, affordable homes to rent long-term with funding from Simplicity. The build-to-rent sector was starting to take root in New Zealand, but the partnership, which was called Simplicity Living, would be using a model that was different to others. Funds within the Simplicity KiwiSaver scheme and the Simplicity Investment Funds would own and fund Simplicity Living through a wholesale funding arrangement. Simplicity Managing Director Sam Stubb said they had billions to invest and wanted their investments to do good while providing their members with fair and solid returns. So investing in build-to-rent options was a well proven model overseas, he said. Pension funds in Europe commonly invest 5 to 20% of their funds this way and achieve solid returns. I know personally uh, I lived in Sweden for a number of years where you can just rent for life if that's what you choose to do. And the funds that own these uh, reap the returns and it's just a very safe uh, investment for investors and it's also a very safe security of lease for the tenants. So the model is like a substitute for fixed-term interest rates. Rather than putting the money in the bank, members can invest in long-term rentals and get real returns of about 3%. It was a safe, reliable investment and would be good for older people or people saving who wanted a reliable return, he said. Remember, something that's pretty important to older people is having a consistency of income and that's something that these sort of schemes can really help for. He goes on to say the goal of the initiative is to provide safe, healthy rental homes where people can live with dignity. We particularly want to be a good option for older people who can't afford retirement villages and want a secure home for the rest of their lives. That vision is shared by the NZ Living team whose expertise and subcontractor and supply base would be transferred to Simplicity Living which would build the homes. So New Zealand Living Managing Director Shane Brearley said his company had built 700 new homes which it had sold at a discount to valuation of $30 million to help first-home buyers get on the property ladder. But he and co-owner Anna Brearley realised those homes would be sold at market price and decided to devote the next phase of their lives to building as many affordable quality homes for renters as possible. 
Builders do need capital to build, though, and in simplicity, they've found their tribe. But with the skill in building and managing and their ability to fund at scale, we're well-placed to make a positive difference in the housing sector. So for me, this is a really good thing, personally. I believe it's great. And uh, the construction on the first homes, which would be fully compliant with the government's healthy home standards and Homestar 6 rated, with a 100-year design life, would begin early next year. So the first development will be a 132-home apartment block in Point England. Construction would begin early next year, the first stage of 66 apartments due to be completed in December and the second stage in March 2023. From there, they're going on to a 60-home apartment block in Onehanga with construction set to develop in March. So once the development's completed, Simplicity members would be given the first option to rent the homes and then they'll be made available to the public. So renters would be offered a one-term lease to start with, and if the arrangement worked, it would be extended to a long-term lease and eventually to offer the right of occupancy to the renters. So interesting that that's getting underway. It's something that would change the dynamic if it was done on a large enough scale in New Zealand, and that's uh, something that I see as uh, very positive. However, not so much positively positiveness shown by a number of the articles that have been circulating in the last week or so. Uh, This article from Stuff, Rob Stock, says homeowners underestimating the scale of home loan rate rises to come. So the home loans are rapidly getting more expensive, the article says, as the main banks push up their mortgage rates and seek to rebuild their lending margins. Gives the example of ANZ lifting its one-year special home loan rate for people with 20% or more equity to 3.34% and its two-year fixed rate to 3.99. Kiwi Bank also moved its home loan rates up with the one-year special rate moving to 3.49 and the two-year rate moving to 3.99. Even three-year fixed rates have pushed over 4%, which is above the pre-COVID levels. So the economists are warning of even higher rates to come as Adrian Orr says Reserve Bank only has a bit role in unsustainable house prices. Independent economist Tony Alexander says he expected rates to go quite a bit higher and he thinks people are underestimating a few things. He says they're underestimating the degree of inflationary pressure in the economy which the Reserve Bank will need to respond to and they're underestimating the eventual Reserve Bank response. The Reserve Bank have lost a credibility for fighting inflation. Only six months ago they predicted inflation right now would be 2.5%. It's 4.9% and that's a horrendous error, Alexander says. So we'll have to see where things go there with interest rates. A relatively small change, of course, in interest rates can make quite a large change to people's budgets. And uh, that leads on to uh, another article here that says House Price Crash Warning it's impossible to save people from their mistakes forever. So this one by Susan Edmonds of Stuff says that there will be a day of reckoning for people who have borrowed too much or invested in things without underestimating the risks involved, a top economist is warning. So the media is really just picking uh, stories that are most sensational. Uh, The Reserve Bank um, did highlight its concerns, again it says in this article, and says that there's a heightened risk of correction in the market. As further house price rises above the sustainable level, um, the larger the realignment could be. So the population drop, it says, has dropped significantly since COVID-19 hit and house building had reached record levels. The last peak in house building in the 1970s coincided with a drop in house prices in real terms. Housing demand had been underpinned by low mortgage rates and owners tapping into the equity, but mortgage rates were increasing and lending criteria had tightened. 
Recent loan-to-value borrowers are vulnerable to a decline in prices from their current levels. Also, the current debt servicing costs are quite low. Higher mortgage rates could see debt servicing costs rise substantially for some borrowers as a share of their income, creating financial stress and reducing aggregate demand. Also, the new building intensification rules will allow for more dwellings to be built within existing urban areas, and by easing one of the constraints on the new housing comply, supply, I should say, these policy changes should support supply responsiveness and a greater moderation of rent and house prices that would otherwise have been the case. So this article goes on to, to justify that they feel that the market is going to slow. As I've said uh, many times on this show, the market in the month or two is very strong. And if the market slows nationally, that can be possibly more related to the main centres. But here's something that's uh, an opinion piece by Rob Stock relating to property. It says, banning young people from buying homes would be a spit in the eye after slapping them in the face. So he says, trapped by their times into monster mortgages, first home Buyers have loans that are often six or seven times their total incomes. The Reserve Bank sees these as high-risk loans and will consult soon on limiting the amount of high-debt-to-income loans banks can make. Let's call those DTIs. Back in 2017, the Reserve Bank had a bash at getting DTIs brought in and talked about a DTI limit of five times, which is a $500,000 property on the income of $100,000, for example. Four years later, with house prices having risen massively, that red line over which it was dangerous to step is now stepped over by the majority of first-home buyers. The Reserve Bank's own data shows of the $1.66 billion of new loans to first-home buyers in June, $953 million, and that's uh, well over half, was at DTIs of five or over. In other words, a DTI limit of five now would ban a good portion of those with deposits from even being able to buy houses. He says he's curious to see what DTI number the Reserve Bank uses in its consultation later this month. Just uh, recalling, the government announced in March it was extending the Brightline test, reducing tax deductions on property investments, and would step up investment in communal infrastructure to support housing developments. The... The writer of this article, Rob Stock, says he did a straw poll he took of economists and reckons probably six, while one felt we might see a high DTI limit of people buying homes in a bid not to bring home building to a grinding halt. But anything lower than a DTI of six would ban so many people from buying it would risk crashing the housing market. So the government, increasingly wary of sentiment change over its handling of the COVID-19 crisis, has made it clear that we do not want a DTI limit to get in the way of first-home buyers. So it's just interesting to see how that's going to go. The Reserve Bank may suggest that it's a good idea. Uh, However, we'll just wait and see, because there is the deal between Labour and National to increase building in our cities, and that's maybe a sign that they're going down that road instead of the the high debt-to-income or low um, debt-to-income ratios. So just to round off uh, all this happy news, uh, more more news here. This is from the uh, Reserve Bank again. They've warned that owners of flood and fire-prone homes will pay more for insurance. So the they're really talking about the owners of flood-prone homes and those at a higher risk of wildfires that will end up paying higher premiums for their housing contents insurance, according to the Reserve Bank. In its financial stability report released on Wednesday, 
The central bank predicted insurers would move to the risk-based pricing for flood and fire-prone homes, which would see owners of those homes paying more for their cover while owners of less-at-risk homes would have their premiums fall. Seems logical to me. Don't know how those people would feel, though. So we anticipate that insurers will respond to a climate change with risk-based pricing models, the bank said. There were already signs that was maybe about to happen with Tower Chief Executive Blair Turnbull signalling last month that the insurer had built its ability to risk home rates for flooding. The Reserve Bank said the push to risk rating individual homes on natural disaster risk was partially driven by international reinsurers, which insure insurance companies they can pay claims should massive disasters strike like the earthquakes that struck Christchurch a decade ago. So once one insurer moves to weather-related risk-based pricing, its rivals would have no choice but to follow, the Reserve Bank said. So what uh, begs the question as to what would they do? Uh, I guess if they are calling them weather-based, I suppose then that can differentiate from the likes of a natural disaster that might be earthquake-related, for example. We follow on now to... Something that I've been talking about previously, but this article just also brings it back up for us, that unfinished homes, as uh, are there's, there's loads of them, as severe building supply shortages stall construction. And this article was uh, based around Canterbury, but it's still uh, a problem around the country. So it says that workers grinding to a standstill on some of the construction sites and jobs could be at risk as home builders battle a fast-growing shortage of materials. Record housing construction powered by demand for real estate and compounded by COVID is putting increasing pressure on supplies and prices nationwide of timber, steel, board products, roofing materials, paint and even nails. Smaller builders awaiting materials say hundreds of orders are being cancelled and suppliers are prioritising major clients. John Hamilton, the master builder's Canterbury president, said the crisis was caused by a perfect storm and was not going away soon. He says we cannot get materials into the country. They go to the biggest markets internationally and a lot of ships don't even stop here anymore. He called for New Zealand to boost production of materials and security of supply so it can build the homes needed. Issues include two fuel timber mills and infrastructure projects using most of the steel, he said. The government wants us to build, but we're not hearing a lot from them about how we're going to negotiate through this. They seem focused on COVID. Hamilton predicted a chain reaction on building sites, including security of unfinished homes and cancelled subcontracting. The follow-on effects could be really devastating. And so it makes you wonder, if you are getting a home built, would you therefore experience a shorter wait time for the build if you're with a large company that has already secured supply? So those are the sort of questions now you might need to ask that maybe we didn't have to ask before, and that is, is this home likely to be finished in the time frame? Do you have the supply of what you need at the moment? And that's something that uh, is, is well worth asking. So we're going to go to a little bit of music now. We've got Four Seasons in One Day by New Zealand's own Crowded House. seasons in one day Lying in the depths of your imagination Worlds above and worlds below The sun shines on the black clouds hanging over the domain 
even when you're feeling warm The temperature could drop away Like four seasons in one day Smiling as the shit comes down You can tell a man from what he has to say Everything gets turned around And I will risk my neck again, again You can take me where you will Up the creek and through the mill Like all the things you can't explain Four seasons in one day Sleeping on an unmade bed Finding out wherever there is comfort There is pain Only one step away Like four seasons in one day Blood dries That was Crowded House, Four Seasons in One Day, and you're listening to Property Matters on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Nga Tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company. Here's an article which might catch some people by surprise. It's a tax warning for Bank of Mum and Dad when helping children onto the property ladder. So parents who provide financial or finance to help their children buy a home may find themselves with unexpected tax bills when their children pay them back, tax experts say. Deloitte tax partner Robin Walker and tax director Susan Wynne have outlined in a recent article how Brightline rules might throw up surprise tax liabilities for parents entering into co-ownership arrangements when helping their children with home ownership. This could be buying a property and gifting it to them or becoming co-owners and progressively having their ownership interests bought out over time, they said. Each of these scenarios could result in an unexpected tax bill. The Brightline test, which taxes income arising from the sale of a residential property when a property was sold within a certain time frame, was a key issue to be aware of, they said. Uh, Earlier this year, the government extended the Brightline test from five years to ten in an effort to dampen investor activity and rebalance the market towards first home buyers. 
just as an aside, of course, that hasn't worked. But anyway, Walker said implications arose if parents co-owned a home with a child and the ownership structure changed, for example, from a 50-50 ownership to a 75-25 because that changed the legal title of the property. This would result in a tax liability and restarting the Brightline test period at 10 years again. That's a disposal which potentially triggers tax and it's going to be a change to when the Brightline period applies so essentially the Brightline period restarts again. Ten years ago it was a long time, sorry, beg your pardon, ten years was a long time to hold on to property making it hard for people in co-ownership arrangements to escape paying tax, she said. Walker said the Brightline test did not apply to the family home but because parents would not be living there they would not benefit from any tax protections from that exemption offered. So for example the children wouldn't have to pay tax if they're living there in part owning but the parents would. And that's an aspect I think that surprises some people. Uh, Essentially the property is being used as a family home it's just not all the owners are living there. Further, if the property was sold or gifted at an amount below its market value within the Brightline period, for example, if a child's repaying their parents, then the transaction would be recorded at the market value of the property at the time of disposal. If the market value of the house had increased from half a million to a million, the parent would be taxed on whatever their share of one million was, rather than the income they'd received as repayment for their share. So you can't even help out that way. If a parent sold out of a 50-50 arrangement on a home, which had doubled in value to $1 million, they could be potentially facing a tax bill of more than $80,000, and that would be an unpleasant surprise. So when purchasing a property, it's important to consider tax consequences of any anticipated future transactions. It's a question of thinking about it up front when you enter into these transactions. So people should think about how they would eventually unwind an arrangement and not fall into these unintended tax consequences because in the uh, the example above, I mean $80,000 is uh, quite significant. National Party spokesman Andrew Bailey said the tax implications for co-ownership arrangements was an unintended consequence of the extension of the Brightline test to 10 years, he said. He said National would not have extended the Brightline test from 5 to 10 years. And the rapid escalation of house prices meant an increasing number of people having to get support from family to secure a deposit, he said. And so by extending the 10-year Brightline test, it makes them harder for them to sell down their interest. Although I disagree, I wouldn't say it's harder, they just wouldn't receive as much money for their investment. He feels, uh, again this is a politician talking, that uh, the added tax liability would deter parents from providing financial assistance to help their kids to get over this line in buying a house which would make it even harder for young people to even contemplate the possibility of buying a new home. So uh, quite uh, interesting there. That's something I hadn't really considered myself, but it's interesting to see that those uh, those are there as these little unforeseen circumstances of the legal changes become more apparent. This article here I quite liked. It was by Joanna Davis on stuff.co.nz. A brand new green home for $300,000. It's possible, but it won't be palatial. Builder James Clark was too busy to build his own home, but he was shocked at the standard of the one built for him, despite the fact it met New Zealand's building code. So the Queenstown home built in 2007 was far from warm and dry, and Clark found his newborn son was repeatedly becoming ill. He was coughing every night, and my personality dictates I won't accept that, so I set out to change the way we build. So originally from England, Clark says he grew up in warm, healthy homes and he was naive when he first came to New Zealand. In 2012, 
he was introduced to an industrial designer who suggested he consider building with SIPs. SIPs, or structured structural insulated panels, consist of insulating foam or polyurethane core sandwiched between two structural facings, usually of strand board. You may have seen these on the likes of uh, some of the building programs that we have on TV these days. They've been used for decades overseas, particularly in the United States and Europe, and are growing in popularity in New Zealand, particularly for use in green homes or super energy efficient homes. They're basically walls with the insulation already built in. I built a system from the. I bought a system from the states. Clark says, and by 2016, demand was so much that I started a factory. We supply all across New Zealand. I've just ticked a hundred projects. So Clark's just completed his own build in Urupuki, Southland, a three-bedroom, 70-square-metre home. My own house in the deepest, darkest Southland with next stop Stewart Island sits perfectly in that environment, he says. The weather pattern is volatile, four seasons in one day, as we just heard. Uh, sun one minute, pouring with rain the next. He says it's warm and dry despite there being no active heating, no mould, no condensations. He says, yes, it's smaller than most new builds in New Zealand. Statistics New Zealand puts the average size of all homes consented at 155 square metres in 2021. It's also more expensive per square metre, almost 4,300 per square metre, compared with the national average cost to build at 2,300. But Clark says it's big enough with one master bedroom, one single and a bunk room, and New Zealanders should be prioritising warm, dry, healthy homes over larger ones. How much space do you need, he says. Do you need a TV room, a rumpus room, a dining room and a living room? Uh, he says, New Zealand is an amazing country. Get out of your house and get amongst it. We've got record numbers of kids with asthma. We've got black mould throughout our houses in New Zealand. It's past time for a change. As well as supplying other construction companies, Cromwell-based NZ SIP has three smart kitset homes at 50 square metres, 70 square metres and 100 square metres, and it's the middle size where the 300000 price tag comes in. Clark says a completed home using his Kitset Smart 70 panels can be built for $300,000 all up, including $54,000 for GST, or plus GST and freight for the wall, roof and floor panels themselves. So the price doesn't include the land. The kits do not include internal framing, external cladding, roofing material, window, door joinery, foundations, decks and porches. But then, and, uh, and so it's really just a way of getting people into a home that are... Um, just, just a bit cheaper, a bit of a cheaper option. Damien McGill, who's the Director of Healthy Home Cooperation and the key name behind the super home movement, says NZ SIP kit sets are an affordable, space-efficient, well-insulated, naturally airtight range of buildings. Quick to erect, perfect for holiday homes, minor dwellings or smaller homes, for those looking to retire, downsize or climb onto their first rung on the property ladder. So they're planning a North Island factory. We'll just watch that space as to how that goes. So that's all for this week in Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson. It's been lovely having your company. You can find this wherever all good podcasts are found or Google Greg Watson, Property Matters, and you'll find your way to us. It's been lovely having your company. We'll catch up again in a week's time. Thanks for listening. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.